you know, when you read a passage like that, it just doesn't make sense. Not from a fleshy standpoint, that is, because we live in this world and when we when we look at a passage like that and we look at our values, the way we look at life, our outlook about things, it's very contrary. For instance, when we look at this world, this world loves accomplishments, right? I mean, you got guys staying tuned to the championship probably coming tomorrow night or is it next week? I've not been keeping up with the Final Four too well, apparently. But you've got guys that are just into who's winning and, and how well they're doing or who's so strong in what they do and speed and strategy and wisdom. All those wonderful qualities that we look for in leaders, in winners, in success. And when we talk about these kinds of things, we can see in light of what we were just looking at last week when Wilson was, was preaching on this very point about having control. That's what we relate to naturally because it relates with success. It relate, relates with power and strength. But what happens when we lose control? Anxiety comes in. The lack of confidence, if you will. We have questions that, that arise and even doubts that set in. That's why you can look at teams from an athletic standpoint that when their confidence is high, it's amazing how well they do. The very same team, when losing that confidence, goes on, I don't know, a Centennial Spurs <laughs> losing streak. And we don't like teams like that. We want winners. And so when we look about us, we want those kinds of people. We want them leading. We want them in all areas of life that brings forth success. But again, success from our earthly vantage point. And yet, when we look at these things as Christians, is our goal to be in control or under control? You see, that was the difference with what the Apostle Paul came to when he understood why that thorn was given to him. Please remove that thorn. But when he understood the purpose of that thorn, that it brought him under the control of God, that he could rejoice in God's power and magnify and glorify his God, how much better? And that's the very principle that I'm wanting us to look at today. Where does our strength lie? If we're talking about glorifying our God in everything that we do, is it because of how good we are or how good he is? That's an attitude change that has to take place in so many of us. And I want you to know, this is something that, that for me, I know academically, I know mentally to be true. But I struggle with from time to time because my life, face it, I mean, just, y'all are getting to know me more and more as we live here long enough. I fight against arrogance. Ask Phil. He brought his rook cards when we were supposed to be having Bible studies. <laughs> and so that we, he could beat me at rook because he knows... Right, Miss Jackie? <laughs> he knows that I want to win. And when I lose, then I play the spiritual card. <laughs> well, you know, the last should be first. <laughs> Go ahead and win. <laughs> but when I win, it's all good. Life is well. Because we, we like that. We're that way. And I'll tell you that when we look at lessons like this, I'm hoping it challenges not just me, I hope it challenges you to look at, at your walk in the Lord, to look at how we view the Lord's church and how the church functions. 
in light of our giving glory to God. Because I'll tell you, sometimes what I hear is the church is at its best when we have its best going. And, and our definition of what is best may not necessarily be what the Lord has in mind. And so I'm wanting to us to look at these things this morning. We're going to look at contrasting the world's view from the view of the word. And then with that contrasting view to see how God's greatness, not ours, is what he wants to glorify him, to magnify him. And I'm going to look at some biblical examples that you'll read with me to see, in fact, how God uses the scriptures to teach us this very point. And when we learn this point, we can see how we are strengthened by it. When we talk about being strong in the Lord, we'll know what that really means with the right attitude and thus with a walk that will glorify God. Well, first of all, when we look at this natural world and looking at life in general, it's this consideration that, you know, every man for himself may the best man win and, you know, be the king of the hill. And so we want the stronger, the faster, the more cunning. because Those are the ones that survive and thrive. That's what the world wants in business and in athletics. That's exactly what we look for, right? That's why you've got the NFL combines, got all the NFL, I mean, the college um, collegiate players that they're going on to the NFL and or they want to be in there. They have to pass the 40 in such and such time based upon their position. Do they have the right height? Do they have the right weight? Do they have the right makeup, mentally that is? And when businesses that are successful businesses, who do they look for? The slacker or the hard worker? Do they look for the one that is lazy or just really gung-ho? You want individuals that are going to bring success. That's the worldly way of, of, of how we do things. But when we contrast that with the way the Scriptures teach, it's no wonder how we can relate so much to this worldly mindset and apply that into the Lord's church. It's amazing that we can look at these things Know the, the scriptures and know the teachings of the scriptures and know the wonderful characters and qualities, but miss the point on how we get there. And that's what we're wanting to look at this morning. When we look at the scriptures and contrast that to the world, we can see that this law of nature, it's the way of the world. That's why we call it nature. But it's not the way of the word. In John chapter 17, I want you to look at this. When Jesus is praying, not only for the unity of the saints, but those that would later on believe upon him, notice what he's praying about, and notice the attitude in which he portrays those who would believe upon him. It says here in verse 16, speaking of those who would, who would um, be believing, believers on him, excuse me, he says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, because they are not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. When you become a child of God, is it because of worldly principles or because of biblical principles? In other words, I'll give you my example. College student, all American. That's my view of myself. Very high esteem of my personal life. But the morning I heard that gospel message, I realized, Mitch Davis, you are living in sin. And when I went through that Rolodex of all my lifestyle, 
I was humbled to see I was living very contrary to the will of God. And it was humbling to the point where I needed the Lord. It was through humility. That's not a natural thing for us. Now, there are some of us that are naturally having the qualities of humility, but for most of us, that's just not the case. It took a different attitude than I had. It took humility for me to come to the Lord. It's not the way of the world. And being in the Lord and in His body, we have to realize that once we leave the kingdom of this world and we come to the Lord, come into His wonderful kingdom of righteousness, we have a different outlook. We're not of this world anymore. That's exactly what Jesus was praying for. And those are the things that we have to understand if we're going to apply this mindset into the walk that we have in the Lord, into the way the Lord's church functions, if you will. And so we cannot apply a truly successful walk unless our mind changes. And brethren, you know how we can force parents... How you can force your children, I don't know about you all, I force mine in the house, do your chores or else. You have consequences and it's just not an idle threat. So I force them and I tell them, I know you're forced, but one thing I cannot force them to do is have the good attitude. I cannot force them to change their attitude from one way of doing their chores to another way. That has to come from themselves. And we have to have that change. If we're going to have a truly successful walk, as the Lord deems successful. And so to the world then, when we talk about, like Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. The world says, that's just a bunch of weakness. That's not what we want. We don't want someone weak. We don't want someone who is unbecoming. In fact, for instance, um, someone had just told me this recently. About those in the community that brethren were reaching out to. And one of the elders, mind you, elders in the congregation, the most spiritually minded among the saints. Got wind of the area of town that brethren are going and preaching the gospel to. And says, we don't want them to come to church here. What kind of people are going to have in this building? You know what the answer is, right? Sinners. Those who need the Lord. When our mind is with this worldly way of thinking, we don't see that. We think of the strong. Those who are going to be strong in the Lord and strong for the Lord. But again, how do you get to there? How do you get to that point where you're strong in the Lord? And what does that mean to be strong in the Lord? That's what we're looking at right here. So to the world, then, when we talk about weaknesses, those things are unbecoming. What we need is power and strength, and that's very different. However, when you look at the Scriptures, and what this is what we're going to look at for the remainder of our service, note in God's Word all those by whom God had been glorified. And what you're going to see is a principle, just like in Judges chapter 7. Remember the story of Gideon? I want you to go to Judges 7. I want you to read that story. And I want you to see the principle of how God is glorified. And then I want us to see how it applies to our walk. And I want to see how it applies to us as a body of believers when we look at this walk. Judges chapter 7. Look at the text here. 
It says in Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side by them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. Now, just to back up, here's a man who has been ousted by his own brethren. But because of, of his abilities, if you will, they wanted to be leader over all Israel and to judge Israel. But he has a mindset that says, how can I? Who am I that I could lead Israel? And God is going to say, here's why I want you. And here's why I want you to choose these men to battle against your enemies. The Lord said to Gideon in verse 2, The people who are with you are too numerous, too many for me, to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. Saying my own hand has saved me. That's the principle. Instead of having thousands, I mean, we're talking about thousands of Israelites, which is not that many compared to the 135,000 they're going to go against. God says, your thousands are too many. I want you to have less than that. I want you to have such a small number that there's going to be no doubt in your mind, as well as your enemies, that it is I who receives the glory for this victory. I'm the one who is fighting your battle for you. And that's the thing, and that's the principle that we need to understand so that we ourselves can give glory to God and that it's God's work through our lives and through our faith, mind you. But God's work that's going to receive the glory. And so the question is, why is God choosing it this way? Why doesn't God to say, you know what, all the Israelites, you come out and you battle against your enemies, these Midianites. Instead, why only 300, as we're going to look at? That's because God is glorified when His power is seen. I'll give you some clear examples before we look at these scriptures. Who gives the greatest lesson of all? Someone who is so wise and understanding and educated. Or some fisherman, uneducated, growing in a place, I don't know, Galilee, that according to tradition doesn't have a very good reputation. Which gives glory to God? I'll tell you what we want to say. You get someone like Gamaliel. You get someone like Paul, educated under his feet or at his feet. That's who you get. Yet God used the most unimaginable of circumstances and individuals to bring glory to his name. And those are the things that I want you to see all throughout Scripture. That's the case. For instance, go back to Egypt in your mind. If you've got your Bible reading down and you've gone through the book of of the latter part of Genesis and the early part of Exodus... Go back when Israel was just a small nation. Abraham has died. The promise has been made to him that he's going to be made a great nation now. His descendants live in Egypt. They become slaves, bondservants of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are a mighty, powerful empire going on right now. And here are these shepherds. 
these slaves. And mind you, a stubborn people. And God is choosing these people to represent His kingdom. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Look at what He says to them. Now, mind you, this is after 40 years in the wilderness. I'm going to back up again. We're going to start from the beginning. But I want you to get some hindsight so you get to see exactly where He's coming from. This is one month before they're entering the land of Canaan, after 40 years in that wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 9, in verse 6, God is going to explain to them, here's the reason why I'm choosing you. And He says, here's the reason why I'm not choosing you. Understand, therefore, verse 6 of Deuteronomy 9, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. I'm bringing you in because, number one, you are small. Number two, you are slaves. And number three, you had no understanding of war. No experience at it. If I bring you in under these conditions, everyone will know that I am Jehovah. I am God, and it is through my power and my strength that I brought you into this promised land. That's what he's going to do. And so what he did was he takes a small group of individuals and he leads them out of Egypt. Now, if you know the, the people of Israel, all they have are tools for farm. I mean, not farming, excuse me, but for shepherding. They might have some tools to make bricks so they can have those bricks for the Egyptians and their building. But they have no experience at war. They've not known war for centuries. And God is saying, I want you to come out of the land. Come out of Egypt. You come worship me. Exodus chapter 4. 14, excuse me. When you read verses 10 through 12, it is an amazing picture of how God is going to lead this people. In fact, it says over here, beginning in verse 10 of Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. Could you imagine you have no weapons and here's an army with all kinds of weapons. Here's the people with no war experience and those coming after them with all kinds of experience having been in battle. They're professionals at massacring people like them. And what did they do? It says the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They're at their weakest moment. Can you imagine the mindset of so many Israelites are if we had just stayed in Israel, if Moses and Aaron just kept their mouth shut, if all we did was continue working, we would not be killed this day. That's their mindset. They're at their weakest. And so at their weakest, they cry out to God because what else can they do? Verse 11, Moses they said to Moses, because there was no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not what the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? If, if they had their way, brethren, and they, their way was to have their safety and, and, and be at peace the way they thought they were, they would never have entered that land. But God is saying... You hold fast. You listen to my words through Moses. You listen to me. And I'm going to bring you into this nation. 
Moses said to the people in verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. He will accomplish for you. In this way, the salvation of the Lord would glorify him among all the nations. And this is exactly what happened. You fast forward in a story. When the spies are now going to enter into, 40 years have passed, they're going to enter into the land of Canaan. They send the spies out and they go to a, a woman's house named Rahab. She reminds them, we know what your God has done for you. We know your God is great. See, God works through individuals in the most unimaginable ways. He took no one. It'd be like me and Levi wrestling. And Levi winning? I mean, that's just no way. Not with my confidence that I could beat my six and a half year old son. No way. And God uses a, a David and Goliath situation like that to bring about his glory. That's what we're talking about as a biblical example. And they're all throughout Scripture. God used these untrained men to battle against the giants of Canaan. Remember the beginning of the 40 years? God is sending them out in the book of Numbers. Sending them out into the land of Canaan to spy it out. They come back with a report. It is exactly as we were told. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Great land. There are giants in the land. Dane told me last, I think it was last night, he said, Daddy, was Jesus about your height? Of course. <laughs> Wait, don't, la don't laugh. I, I, I may be short to you Caucasian people here. <laughs> but, you know, Jews aren't very tall people, typically. Remember their reply? We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. And we ourselves look like grasshoppers in their eyes. I mean, they look at us as we're small. And we know we're small. God used these untrained men, no military experience, and brought them into the land. Now you tell me, who won the battle? The Israelites or God on behalf of the Israelites? You tell me. Because once you say the Israelites, you didn't give glory to God. But when you say God, that's exactly what he wants to hear. Now, yes, they had to go into battle. Yes, they actually had to fight. And yes, there's a manifestation of faith and there's a message of faith in that. That's not the message right here. The message is what is the attitude that they needed to learn. And that is that God fights their battles. It's God's power and it's God's strength. That was very important for him to receive that glory. And that is why when we go back to Judges chapter 2 and read of that story, that you go from thousands of Israelites down to 300. 300 Israelites going to battle against 135 plus thousand of their enemies. Now, if, if you're a betting person, I'm not asking you to bet. I'm not telling you to bet. But if you're the betting person, mentality, and you're going to Vegas, you don't put your money on 300 individuals. That's just absurd. You're losing your money. It's guaranteed loss. That's the point. God wants His name magnified. He wants His name glorified. Among all nations, just read Malachi. 
That's his reason for being. That's the reason why we are here, to magnify his name, to glorify him and how great he is, not how great we are. That's why he used these 300 men in these armies. He also used a young, small shepherd boy, teenager, didn't know war, to fight against a giant of a man. Children, you know who I'm talking about? His name was Goliath. A man who had fought many, many battles. And here's David, never been in war. In fact, David couldn't even use King Saul's armor. He was so small. Couldn't work with that. So what does he do? He just gets a few pieces of stone. And he's going up against a giant of a man with great armor, great strength. And God used this small shepherd boy who had great faith in God, in God's power, God's strength, God's might to bring about salvation for the Israelites. They understood the same principle. This is the principle God wanted Israel to understand. I fight your battles for you. And it's no different than for us today. It's no different. God uses the seemingly worthless today to bring about His glory. I'll tell you this. It's just my personal opinion, but this is from what I see in in my life. When I became a Christian... And I knew nothing. I mean, when you talk about God's word, the morning before, I, the morning of the, of when I obeyed the gospel, I couldn't tell you a single passage in the Bible. I couldn't tell you a single verse. I did not know who Jesus Christ was that morning before becoming a Christian. And one day later, I'm talking to many individuals about the gospel. How is that possible? I have not had any Bible training. And I'll tell you this much. I told everyone what they needed to do to become a Christian because that's what I had done. And because of my naivete, I could tell someone you're not a Christian. And, and not think anything of it because I was not afraid of them. I didn't know to be afraid that they would hit me, literally. I would not be afraid that they would smirk or be afraid that they would have scowling eyes if I told them that their view of Christianity was contrary to God's word. All I knew was everyone would want to hear this message that I have to share. That's what I did. Who's more effective? Someone like that, that's green, very, very, very green, or someone that knows better and is like, oh man, I, I, I don't know. I might say the wrong thing. They might not accept the message that I have. Think about that. God wants the glory. And He doesn't want someone who's so polished that He... It's the reason why, because I said it just the right way. I gave the perfect packaged message. Wow. Can you sell that? I mean, not sell it, but... Teach it to others because everyone wants to know how you... Because that way we can all sell the gospel. I mean, not sell it. Preach the gospel. You see the point I'm saying? We have the mentality. It becomes very worldly. And people start looking at the man and not the Savior. And that happens in the pulpits as well. It happens among leaders that we look to them that they are so great. 
Brethren, we've got to stop if that's the case. And we need to repent if that's the case. We're nothing but servants. And we're nothing without the power of God. And when we look at this gospel message, we see that because God used this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see the same in the New Testament scriptures. He used the unlikeliest of men. He used women, prostitutes. He used tax collectors. He used those who are known sinners among the Jews. And that's his main party for going and teaching God's word. These men and women. You stop and think about that. That's what we have. Remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 7? These are just Galileans. They're the ones preaching the gospel. The unlikeliest of sort. Read Luke chapter 5. Same thing. He didn't also, I mean, didn't just use the unlikeliest of, unlikeliest of individuals. He used even the unlikeliest machine or mechanism by which the message we preached. That's why the world looks at the gospel and it's foolishness. You believe in a God you can't even see. That's what I've been told by atheists. Mitch, you believe in a God you cannot even see. You talk to someone. It'd be like me talking to this wall. That's how ludicrous you look to me. You know how humbling that is? You're you're looked upon as a fool by people in this world. And they look down upon you. You know, the message is just not packaged very powerfully that way. It's the world's view of what power looks like and the powerful message. And yet, what are we told in Romans chapter 1 verse 17? The gospel has great power, right? Great power for those who believe. Because they're looking at things not from this world's vantage point. Someone does not come to the Lord from that vantage point. He comes to the Lord on the Lord's terms if he's going to be truly converted to him. And so he uses the humble and meek recipients to flourish in his kingdom. And that is why in Romans chapter 6, when you read verses 16 and, uh, I mean 17 through 18, or you read Matthew chapter 5, who's in the kingdom? Romans chapter 6, servants of righteousness. That's who. Who are these servants of righteousness? Those who humble themselves to the point of death. Just read the first part of Romans chapter 6. They humble themselves to the point of death and they're raised to walk in newness of life and they become lifelong servants. They're called bond servants. That means you voluntarily subject yourself and submit yourself under the sovereignty and leadership of Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's way and not yours. It's the Lord's power and not yours that, that allowed you to be saved. And the humility, Matthew chapter 5, when you read that Sermon on the Mount and the, those Beatitudes. That's what he wants in his kingdom. He doesn't want someone who's proud. He wants someone who's meek. He doesn't want someone who is so big and puffed up. But someone who's humbled. That's what he wants. And so if we're talking about glorifying our God. And we're talking about having power and strength then there's attitudes that go with it. And sometimes our word choices show the attitude that we have as a society and as individuals. For instance, 
Nothing in Scripture says this, but I believe the principles bring this out in Scripture. Where's your confidence? Is it in yourself or in the Lord? Someone said, well, that's kind of a catch-22. I mean, you know, when you stop and think about it, you, not, you have to have confidence, right? Yeah, you need to. I believe we should all be confident, every one of us. We should present ourselves with confidence. But where is that confidence? Is it in yourself or in the Lord? See, it's my opinion, and it's a strong, strong opinion that I have. Our confidence lies and our strength lies not in ourselves but in Him. That's why when we sing that song um, in heavenly armor, we talk about putting on the armor of the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 10. We put on the Lord's garment. Right? We put on His armor. So that we have His power. Not because of who I am. I can present myself before you as confident, as strong, but it's only because of the Lord. It's not because I am so smart. It's not because I am so strong and so powerful. It's not because I have the perfect words when teaching God's word, because that's far from the case. Sometimes I wonder, maybe that's why God has Mitch Davis preaching the gospel, because his English ain't good. He's not very tall. So you don't have that, I don't know, like Wilson, seven feet tall. Maybe you can use someone like me. And I don't have all the great illustrations. You know what I have? And I say this with boldness, and I say this with no apology to you. I have that boldness, and I have that confidence because it's in the Lord. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And I can teach the same message as anyone else. Because it's the Lord who's going to be glorified. That's the confidence that we need to have. The faith that we have to go into battle knowing that it's the Lord's battle. That's why it doesn't matter when we go knocking on doors in the community here. And people are going to be worried about us. No. We shouldn't be worried about us. We shouldn't worry that we don't have the most perfect words and so on and so forth. What we worry is that we have concern and love for souls. And that those souls that we have concern for hear the message of Jesus Christ and give Him the glory. That's why. Our strength lies in Him. And just like the Apostle Paul then, and I believe, and I need this because of my personal arrogance. I know it. Just ask Carly when we play ping pong. I need humility. I really do. My children remind me every day I need humility. Because my power and my strength only comes from the Lord's grace. And brethren, when things are going well for you, and you start to think or verbalize in any which way until you're corrected, that you are something great, and the Lord comes along and brings you this thorn... It is for your good. It is for your good. And you may ask for that thorn to be removed, but it's for your good. Because he wants to receive the power and the glory, the dominion. Because it belongs to him. And you're his servant. Paul understood this truth, and we need to understand this truth the same way. So what we have to do is get rid of this fleshly mindset about what determines us to be great Christians, strong Christians. Because we're only great and strong because of the Lord.
And it's in His power, it's in His strength that we are great. When you talk about having a high, quote-unquote, self-esteem, in my mind, it's a high Christ-esteem. Because then we give the proper glory and honor to where it belongs. Now, I know it flies in the face of education. Mind you, I've, I've, I went to all the college classes in education, school teaching, and, and I did those things. Understand those things. Understand it from the psychology classes that I took. But when you read your Bible, tell me where the teaching lies, who you glorify, who you lift up, yourself or the one who gives you life. That's what I want you to understand. When God is magnified, when He is glorified, and even through our weaknesses, then His name is magnified even more. All the stories in the Old Testament bring that out. From Joseph, while in prison, letting people know how great God is, not taking credit for the fact that he was able to, to interpret dreams and visions, if you will, all the way down to Jesus Christ, when he's on the brink of death, when he's at his weakest moment and ready to yield up his spirit, that that's how his God was going to be glorified. That's how our Father in heaven had his name magnified at the highest of heights. You stop and think about those examples. Go through all the Bible and note those. And when you become a Christian, you're not simply, well, I'm doing, I'm doing the Lord's will. I, I heard God's word. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I confess Him as the Christ. I'm being baptized. Okay, I'm a Christian. I'm baptized into Christ. You humble yourself to the point of death. You die to self. You die to sin, that man of sin. And you humble yourself as you come up out of that watery grave because you become a servant of the King of Righteousness. You become a servant of the King of Kings. You humble yourself in that way and God is glorified. That's the attitude I want you to have.